I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. In his new book, Rise Up, Confronting a Country at the Crossroads, Reverend Al Sharpton confronts a lot of issues, and we talk about most of them. Latte liberals, Republican pimps, toxic masculinity in the black community. We talk about the fraught relationship between blacks and the LGBTQ community and how Sharpton's accepting heart helped me years ago. And given the state of our nation today, Sharpton explains why it's imperative that you rise up. Hear it all right now. Reverend Al Sharpton, welcome to the podcast for the first time. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be with you, Jonathan. Your book, Rise Up, was really terrific. It really was. And hopefully we can squeeze in as much as we can to talk about it. One of the things you write about that I found very interesting, you coined this term, latte liberals. Who are they? They are people that call themselves progressive. And they sit around theorizing and philosophizing and even strategizing, but never really get into the fight. They don't get their hands dirty. They're not at the marches. They're not registering voters. They're not engaged with people. And it's sort of like they sit in these elite circles in these parlor conversations, sipping lattes, critiquing what all of us that are on the front lines or in the trenches are doing, and they don't do anything themselves. And they can afford to come with the most unrealistic, impractical kind of stands because they don't have to go out and deal with families that are victimized or people that are outraged. And that's why I've said that they are a real problem because they will go for what is theoretically the most best sounding thing that is totally impractical and totally plays on the emotions of people. One thing you write in the book, you write, quote, a latte liberal may mean well, but his lack of empathy or understanding of the basic inequalities that go hand in hand with bigotry, racism, and economic disparity make him suspect to anyone struggling to get a foothold in the American dream. I'd go so far as to say that if latte liberals had a better sense of these issues and their black and brown and immigrant brothers, there'd be no need for someone like me. I think that uh, the reason I wrote that is because I'm often asked, why do people reach out to me? They reach out to me because uh, we have built an organization that not only deals with the obviously organizing the protest and working with their legal and media needs, but that really understand and feels their pain and their rage because we have that pain and that rage. And a lot of the latte liberals see them as theoretical. They're like pawns on a chessboard rather than real people who lost their son to police violence or lost their uh, nephew or their cousin who has no preparation for that, know nothing about activism, know nothing about anything, that many of them don't even have the means to go forward and, and, and take care of funeral expenses. And latte liberals just see them as objects to get to some politically theory that they've been playing with in their little elite uh, discussions. And I think that that is why they are, you notice they are never connected to the people in the community on the base. They're usually just analyzing something in safe quarters 
in their privileged status because many of them are privileged themselves so they can experiment with risk for others because they're not taking that risk. When I read that passage in the book, I wrote in the margins, Bernie critique, because that was my big critique of Bernie Sanders when he ran in 2016 and then again this go-round in 2020. Well, I, I had challenged uh, Bernie in 16, and I think he did better in 18, uh, and I think he started to get it. And I, I, I give Nina Turner and others a lot of credit for that. But uh, I think that a lot of the indication that your critique and mine to him was right is the black vote. How does he explain never getting the black vote? I think that people... You can say all you want, oh, Trump is unfair to hit the latte liberals. Well, explain to me why the progressives, in quote, don't get the black vote. It is not because that blacks are anti-progressive, is that there's no connection and there's no involvement with a lot of them and us. Now, AOC and others are different. They, you know, come and relate to all of that. But a lot of these that call themselves progressives are totally removed from the people that they want to speak. They speak on behalf of people they don't speak to. And so then, given that critique, Joe Biden is the right nominee for the Democratic Party. I think Joe Biden ends up being the right nominee because Joe Biden, who I had fought with in the 90s, I marched on the uh, crime bill. But I think Joe Biden has uh, been able to, one, not be inflexible. He has said came and did the National Action Network Martin Luther King Breakfast in uh, 2019 and said, no, I'm sorry, 2018, and said that, yes, the crime bill had unintended consequences. Yes, I did things that did lead to unintended consequences. Most of our elitist progressives can't admit to anything wrong. And I think the fact that he did eight years as the vice president to Barack Obama and never once did not uh, stand with him and help get a lot of that through his former Senate candidate, uh, colleagues rather, uh, helped him a lot. And I think that he took a lot of heat from people like me, but he was able to emerge as, yes, the best candidate. And I think uh, going into the election, we will probably see surprising turnout for him. You take Democrats to task in the book, but not surprisingly, you take Republicans to task. But it's interesting, in the most direct, blunt language I have seen, you write, the Democrats' failing of the black community, however, doesn't vindicate the Republicans. Far from it. The Republican Party wrote off the black community years ago. Just because you're in an abusive relationship doesn't mean you leave only to submit yourself to a pimp. Black Republicans like to say to anyone who's not a black Republican, oh, you're on the, quote, Democratic plantation. But what you argue there is what they're offering isn't much better at all. Well, it's not only not better, it's worse because they are offering us nothing that's in our interest. You know, and I talk about in the book, when I was born and raised in Brooklyn, my parents were Republican. My bishop that I started preaching as a boy preacher was Republican. They changed to become Democrats in the 60s, when I wasn't even 10 years old, because John Kennedy and then Lyndon Johnson were supportive and got passed under Johnson, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. So we're not on anyone's plantation. We are as intelligent as anybody else in the American electorate. 
We go with who serves our interests. And for the Republicans to say that the Democrats have been deficient, and they have, therefore come to us who will give you nothing, and not only not give you anything, but will stand against the things you need. We're going to suppress the Voting Rights Act. We're going to suppress the Affordable Care Act, where we disproportionately need health care. We're going to suppress criminal justice matters, where Trump came in and canceled all the consent decrees with cities around the country with the Justice Department. That's what a pimp does. A pimp sweet talks you, oh, you don't need him, I'll do more for you, come with me. And then they just use you for their own benefit and to your own degrading over and over again. And we should not be pimped. We should definitely demand the Democrats respect and regard us, but we should not be some candidate to be pimped by those that just want to use us for their pleasure and not anything but degradation to us. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. You write about many things in your book. On the one hand, I'm reading, you're writing about environmental justice. You're writing about the Me Too movement. You're writing about a lot of issues where under normal circumstances, I'd be thinking, is Rev going to run for president again? But one of the chapters that I really took to heart personally, you dedicated an entire chapter on the LGBTQ movement and what it means, and from your perspective, not only as a black man, but the brother of a gay sister. Why was it important for you to write an entire chapter? You could have dealt with it in a few paragraphs. No, I I wanted to write that chapter because as the whole idea of the book is that America's at the crossroad. We cannot travel the right road unless we really make priority everyone that needs to be in this intersectional movement and not just give people the quick drift and, oh, I mentioned that and keep going. What has happened in the LGBTQ movement is very important and must be put front and center. If And, and not that, oh, y'all just come along, we'll take care of you. No, it should be front and center as part of choosing the right road in this country. And by me growing up with a gay sister, I understood she had to deal with racism. She had to deal with gender inequality and homophobia. So I saw firsthand this triple whammy on her and she couldn't choose which discrimination she was gonna deal with. So I wanted to concentrate on that. I also talked about how a gay man, Bayard Rust, who was a, Mm -hmm. huge force in the 60s, 
when I was a teenager and started my own youth group in, in 71, he gave me the money to get started and how people shunned him. He could not even get credit for being the chief organizer of the 1963 March on Washington because he was gay. And I wanted to make this statement since I have this public platform that we need to stop that and we need to equally go out and deal with all bias, whether it is racism, whether it is misogyny, whether it's homophobia, and we cannot pick and choose these things. I get all the time on my radio show, people saying, well, women don't suffer like we have, or gays don't suffer like we have. And, I, and the, the analogy I use is, if we all laying in the hospital, and we're all on the same, in the same room, do we all want to have the best healthcare that will heal us, or do we want to sit around and act like who has the worst infirmity? The objective is we're all laying in a room that needs to be healed. And rather than sit around trying to compare pain, let's all try to get this country to heal up. During the um, Democratic primaries, I wrote, I think, at least one column, maybe two, thundering against this notion that the African-American community wasn't supporting Mayor Pete because the African-American community is homophobic, just broad-brushed homophobic. And you write in your book, the black community cannot move forward without coming to terms with our gay brothers and sisters. And I wrote in the margins, so have I been wrong to thunder against those saying blacks are riven with homophobia? I think a lot of blacks are, but I think there's increasing numbers that are not. Uh, but I remember when I came out 20 years ago for same-sex marriage, I had minister friends of mine that I preached for them on an annual basis tell me, uh, Reverend, I don't know if I can bring you to the church this year because my members are not going to deal with this. And I said, well, then I won't come. And later on, they kind of mellowed and came around. But uh, my thing is that the black community there are people that when we challenge them or quietly say, well, I know you're right, but it wasn't the right thing to uh, come out or the popular thing to come out to do. I find it is moving more toward those of us that will take the stand, but there's still some homophobia there. And I think it's hypocritical because many of the churches that criticize me know they have gays in the church. We didn't discover gays in 2010. Uh, so, I mean, what are we talking about? We have in our family. And I think that we need to really deal with it openly and we need to deal with it as a factual matter. And we need to understand you cannot fight for anyone's civil rights unless you fight for everyone's civil rights. As I'm sitting here listening to you speak, you write a lot, I think it's in the previous chapter before you get to this, about toxic masculinity. Before you go to toxic masculinity, one of the things that received very little notice is there was a million youth march in New York years ago, and there was a controversial figure that headed the march, controversial to many people, but he had thousands of people there. And I supported his right to have the march. And he told me, you can come and say whatever you want. And I got on the stage and denounced blacks that were homophobic or anti-Semitic and all in a crowd that clearly was not my home crowd. And of course, the media didn't cover it. Only one person wrote that I showed courage in doing that. His name was Jonathan Capehart. <laughs> I thought that sounded familiar. You wrote a Daily News article saying, 
that as much as I'm against this march, Al Sharpton did the right thing and stood up at the march in front of those thousands because I wanted to show that I would go where it wasn't popular and say that. And I did. And of course, none of my critics will even remember that, even though you put it in writing for all time. Well, before I go then to toxic masculinity, I mean, I think it's important for people to know we have known each other for 30 years. We've been friends for just about that long. I've covered you that long. And I remember when my first long-term relationship broke up, you and I were having breakfast at the Regency, as we used to do. And you you like, so what's going on? I heard you broke up. And I said, yeah, 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 we did. And I gave you this very bland, cold explanation. And then you said, no, really, what happened? And then I gave you part two of the bland, cold explanation. And then you tapped my wrist and you looked at me and you said, Jonathan, listen, we are friends I'm a minister. Tell me why. And it was in that moment that I realized, well, holy smokes, he's genuinely asking me as a friend, but also reaching a handout to someone who's in a same-sex relationship. And it meant the world to me that you asked me in that moment. So that's also why I was so happy to see in your book, you had an entire chapter dedicated to the LGBTQ movement and your views on it. And I hope that, you know, fellow ministers who aren't quite there yet, read it and take it to heart. But in terms of toxic masculinity, how does that play into the views of some African Americans on LGBTQ issues? I think it plays in because we accept a greater definition of what masculinity is. And masculinity is not based on who you love. It's based on the fact that you know you are born male and you are given to expressing that and manifesting that whichever way you're inclined to and born to relate. And I think that this whole idea of that we've got to show our masculinity by being macho and, and this whole perception is wrong and perverted. It is just as bad as people telling us how to be a good black or a good Latino is that, oh, you got to be a macho man in order to be a real man. No, a man is a man and a man could be that in many ways. And I think it's also uh, uh, abusive to uh, homosexual relationships and with women that we've got to expect that women have to be less than equal so that we can feel more like a man, or that if men are engaged in a same-sex relationship, they are not real men. All of that is notions that are designed to exploit us and reduce uh, people's self-worth. At the end of your book, you do something that I found really informative. And again, having covered you for almost 30 years, it truly is a how-to primer on how to be an activist. So I want to run through all the things that you say. The number one thing you say is to prioritize. Exactly. Most people, when they decide they're going to get active, they want to do everything. You've got to say, wait, I want to do three, four, five things, but this is my priority. And you've got to know what comes first, what is most impactful and most effective. And you cannot go out of there with go out without a strategy. At random, activism may make you feel better, but it's not going to get things done. Then the second thing you say, do your homework. You've got to know what you're going after. You've got to know 
your opponent or your adversary or the institution you're challenging. And like, for example, we, everyone is, is saying let's register and let's vote in uh, 2020. Well, you need to know the voting laws in your county. You need to know the process in your county. Because if you don't understand the rules of the game, you'll never win. Just so that I don't give away everything so people buy the book, I'm going to skip ahead to get your house in order. One of the things that I learned, and as you said, you've known me and covered me 30 years and we've been friends, that I had to learn is that the more public you are, the more scrutiny you're going to face. And early in my career, I would say things or do things or be sloppy with things like accounting and all, which would only make me vulnerable to my adversaries. I wasn't doing nothing wrong. I just wasn't making sure that everything would stand scrutiny because people are going to come after you. The higher you rise, the more they're going to take shots at you. So you've got to be prepared to be as defensive as you are offensive. I was great at being offensive. I was not as good at being defensive, and I outlined some steps in that. You also say that folks need to know the opposition, their adversaries in activism, as well as their own issues so that they can find how best to do battle. If they stay in their own cocoons, they're not really activists. Another thing you say, to take a vanity test, you say, speaking personally, sometimes my vanity outran my sanity and I had to check myself. Talk about the lesson there. Sometimes it's even more important to step out of the spotlight. Absolutely. What what I learned over time was sometimes we get so carried away with making the news that we were not making change. And we would say things that we know was a soundbite and cue to get you on the evening news, but it wasn't going to really lead to a change. Sometimes you've got to learn when to show up and show out or when not to. So, for example, I will fight, as I have all my career, from Howard Beach in the 80s to now George Floyd. What I learned is that the families and the issue and those that want to change laws may need an Al Sharpton out front to rally people and galvanize people. But when it goes to court, I don't need to go in the courtroom. Why don't you need to go in the courtroom, Reverend? I've had people say me that in the last three or four years, the Garner situation all. Because maybe somebody in the jury hates Al Sharpton and can't hear the evidence because they're so, I can't stand him. Let them see the family. Let them see the victim. Be invisible. Don't take that position. So, And I'm just using that as an example in my own life, that you've got to know when your ego, and all of us have ego, but where your ego can be out there, and you've got to also have enough ego and check to say, I'm not the one that should do this because it will hurt more than it will help if you are sincerely trying to get something achieved. Like when President Obama was in office for eight years, I had access to him. There were a lot of stories talking about how many times I went to the White House. But I had not one time asked him for an appointment or to get a friend of mine a job or that I wanted to be uh, in some commission because why would I want to be part of an administration that I want to hold accountable? And why put him in a position to, if he would do it, and I never found out, if he would do it, that he have to defend that when there was somebody else that could do that. But Ego would have said, well, why can't I have some position? Because I chose to be on the outside 
and stay out there. If you have access to the inside, good, but going back outside, because that's the life you chose. And I think that it takes a lot of self-discipline to uh, be able to keep your ego to where your ego doesn't charge past your effect. You write in the book, I've been working as an activist since I was a teenager, and I've seen more people come and go because they get blinded by the light. The point of the light is to shine a spotlight on a problem, not to bask in it yourself. It's absolutely crucial. You don't get in the way of your own cause. A notation I made is how much does maturity play into this? Because people seem to forget, and as you say in that passage, you've been in this work since you were a teenager. You are a completely different person now. So how much does maturity and applying what you've learned key to, for lack of a better description, staying in the spotlight in the sense that being a leader, being an activist leader? I think maturity has a lot to do with it. And I thank God I lived long enough to mature because a lot of people that were activists were killed in their young, younger days. I was stabbed. I mean, so I, I don't take life for granted. But I also think that a lot of trial and error plays a large part. And you start seeing over time where you can question yourself and say, am I doing this for the right reason? And that's why I wanted to write that part in the book so I could share with people to what to look out for because you could in a mindlessly way get caught up in the glare of the spotlight. It's intoxicating, but it also can blind you. And there's a difference between an activist and a celebrity. Now, you may become celebrity status, but your core must stay an activist. I tell a lot of young activists in National Action Network that you can have a big following on Facebook, but if you're just playing to your following and not playing to real change, you become more of a detriment than you become an asset to the movement that we're trying to have. Rev, last question, and that has to do with something that you write at the end of the book, which really is a clarion call to all those people who say they want to get involved and be an activist or be a part of something, and then they don't do it. You write, I tell everyone that the hardest job of being a preacher is to eulogize the life of someone who did nothing. My friends, it's harder still to eulogize the lifeblood of a country who did nothing, who sat idly by while their fellow citizens reeled in pain and could not draw a breath because of the suffocating wickedness and venom that courses through this country's veins. You then go on to write, and so I beg of you, give me something to work with. When your time comes and I'm standing before your family as they prepare to take you to God, let there be something worthy, something of merit that you did for your fellow man that helped to lift them. Why don't people get involved? And why is now, the time that we're in now, especially important that they get involved? I think people have a wrong way of weighing the value of life. Value of life is not what you accumulate in terms of material things. I often tell people you can have a big house and it'll be on sale a week after you die unless your family keeps it or a nice car will ride all over D.C. in your car. The value of life is what you get done for more than you. And I've become very selective now, Jonathan, on even what funerals I will give eulogies because I got tired of having to get up and fabricate lives for people they never lived. Most people haven't done anything you can eulogize. 
And I've done eulogies for great people, but they did great things. And I think that that is what you need to ask yourself. I ask myself that when it is all over, what can they say about me? And they can't say you had a big house or big car. Or, who cares? There's always somebody with a bigger house. Can they say you made a difference for more than you? And in these times, in the times of a pandemic, in the times of where you couldn't have had more graphic examples of the right and the left and the body politic, in the times of the Supreme Court, where we have one standard when it's Obama Garland and another standard with Trump, if you can't stand up and find a way to make a difference now, then your life will really have had no meaning in the long run. 50 years from now, your great-grandchildren will say, well, I wonder what they were about, because they were alive during those times, and you need to answer that. And nobody's going to say, oh, my great-grandmother, my great-grandfather was alive in 2020, and they had X amount of dollars in the bank, or they drove this kind of car. All of that will be useless and out of style. But will they be able to say in a decisive election year, will they be able to say while the pandemic was going on, Will it be able to say when people trying to roll back rights for blacks, and women, and, and gays, that my great-grandmother, great-grandfather were part of the movement to hold that back? That's what you need to ask yourself. And if you can't satisfy yourself with the answer, you need to go to work. Reverend Al Sharpton, author of Rise Up, Confronting a Country at the Crossroads, founder of the National Action Network, anchor of MSNBC's Politics Nation. You got any other jobs I should mention? I'll send you a card. <laughs> Reverend Al Sharpton, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. 